Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 80. I'm the host, Dan Holzman. On this episode, our special guest is legendary comedy juggler, Mr. Frank Olivier. Before we get to my conversation with Frank, let's thank our sponsor, the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. Information about this great group of jugglers can be found at juggle.org. Okay, now drop everything. Get ready for Mr. Frank Olivier. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 80. My special guest, Mr. Frank Olivier. Hello, Frank. Woohoo! Hey, good to be here. <laughs> I know I'm reaching you in the Bay Area, but what city are you in the Bay Area? In San Leandro. And are you living in one of your giant warehouse spaces? No, I lived in those for many years, and now we own a house in San Leandro, California, right next to Gateway to Hayward, actually. Yeah, I visited you a couple times, and you had a giant loft type of space. Was that so you could work on all of your crazy ideas and all your high juggling stuff? Oh, I always like being in loft spaces. Uh, I go and rehearse in one now, not too far from here, over at the Prop Box in Oakland, where the where the jugglers meeting is on Thursday nights, or used to be. I guess nothing nothing's happening anymore. But that's where back in the olden days, uh, BC before Corona, when people was, could congregate. Yes, I remember congregating. That was one of my, my favorite things to do. Actually. Remember social closeness? Remember that? I, I do. <laughs> I actually, want to. I want to get a. I want to do a YouTube video now. Uh, Put on a free hugs shirt and go chasing people <laughs> down the street. My, my friend said he was going to offer people five bucks for hugs. I don't think you can get free <laughs> hugs away anymore. Unfortunately, I think this podcast will be uh, on this month, and will be, of course, still during the uh, the virus. So yes, well. but this will be a nice way for people to relax and have an hour of virus-free conversation. About okay, we'll juggling. stop stop here now then. And then look back on the career back when there was live performing in the United States. What were you supposed to be doing right now? Because right now you're a Saturday. Were you actually supposed to be at a gig right now? Right now I was going to be taping a, uh, a couple of, yeah, I was going to be doing a videotaping of a uh, of a, an interview for Pinterest. It was going to be doing a piece on me, a oh. whole a whole piece uh, dedicated. It was going to be all about me. It's just like this podcast, but it was going to be a, a bigger, bigger deal. Well, well, I had a, a film with Spielberg. I was supposed to be filming yeah. today, but... Uh, really? Awesome. No, no, no. <laughs> All right, let's back to Frank Olivier. Back to Frank Olivier. Sure. You're a uh, Bay Area guy from the beginning, right? Where were you born, and what was the early Frank Olivier like? Before juggling, BJ. Oh, I was uh, born in Walnut Creek, California, but grew up my entire upbringing was in Berkeley. Berkeley's a small country right next to Oakland. They have their own rules there, their own hierarchy. Exactly. And uh, yeah, I grew up uh, upbringing. Oh, I remember getting to go home early from second or third grade because uh, tear gas was wafting over our school from the UC Berkeley a, a couple of miles away. And so the kids were all, ah, my eyes, my eyes. <laughs> and so that was a hotbed of political activity, Berkeley, California. And uh, at what age did you first discover juggling? What was your first memory of seeing a juggler? Actually, third grade. My mom tells me when I was two years old, I sat watching a, a friend of theirs who was a juggler do some juggling for the longest, longest time as a two-year-old. But the earliest I remember was in third grade. A fireman came to our third grade class and taught fire safety using juggling balls as a visual aid. He explained how to keep the baby away from the <laughs> fire and the fire away from the oxygen, and you juggled them around in a did a three-ball shower with them. Right, and don't drop the baby, right? Exactly. That was, uh, I know how to keep the baby away from the fire, fire away from the oxygen. It wasn't until many years later I realized he was also keeping the baby away from the oxygen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it sounds unscientific. This gentleman had inspired me to do all these crazy things with fire that I've done through my whole life, so I think that's kind of funny, too. Now, did you try to juggle soon after you saw that fireman, or did it take a while before the, the desire kicked in? I worked on it for a couple of years, and I learned to where I could actually do a three-ball shower a little bit, and it was a couple of years later when I was 11 years old that somebody saw me trying to shower three balls and getting a little way. I said, why don't you do it the easy way? I said, what, what's the easy way? <laughs> so you thought the shower was the basic pattern? Exactly. I was uh, nobody around doing any juggling. And somebody showed me a cascade. All of a sudden, I could do all these different tricks, and uh, it exploded from there very, very quickly. If you learn the more difficult way of uh, doing something, then the easier way is much, much easier. And also, you've had that kind of advantage of having built up the hand speed to kind of, because obviously yeah. the shower is a much faster trick. Exactly. And when did you start performing, or did you start sort of assuming the identity of the juggler because people saw you juggling? 
How'd you start becoming a public presence as Frank Olivier? Well, let's see. I was probably at 11. I also learned unicycling, just thinking it would go along well with the juggling, something to do with your feet while well, something to do with your hands. And then I started riding around uh, probably 12 years old. I was, yeah, I was riding around UC Berkeley campus, following people along. I found a way to make money with it. You see, I would ride along and follow somebody along and juggle three balls and four balls and follow them as they're walking to their class or wherever they're going. And then after a little bit of following them, I uh, hold out a little Sierra Club cup and they would drop some coins in my in my cup. And that was how I made big money back in the day. <laughs> oh, man, that was <laughs> that was your first experience of getting money for juggling. How'd that feel? Oh, it was fun. It was <laughs> But you wouldn't like try to get people to watch. You would actually get the money from the people who you followed. Was it kind of like go away money or appreciation money? <laughs> That's a good question. I think it was, people seemed genuinely delighted with it. And so I, I don't think I would follow people who were saying, stop it. I think the people who said stop it, I would pretty quickly stop it if I remember properly. <laughs> but you could read the vibe and decide to pedal away if you needed to. You, you find the people that are smiling and going, wow. And then you ride over and you follow them along and show them a few tricks. And then they obviously owe you something. Because... <laughs> right, you made them laugh and now they owe you. Exactly. You grew up in the Bay Area. What part did street performing play? Did you go out to the pier and watch different performers or did you go out there yourself to start to perform pretty early? Uh, well, I went a couple of different other performing things came up uh, mm -hmm. early on. I was riding down the street when uh, a couple of producers, local TV producers chased me down. Wait, stop, stop, stop. And they wanted me for two or three years. I was on a show called Get Box Tickle, which is a local oh. local show with a bunch of kids on it, put on by John Fromer, who's a singer-songwriter guy. And uh, it was a, a local TV show and they had a panel of uh, kids doing different performing things and I would do magic and juggling and mime and unicycling and all of that on that show as part of that show. And then I also, about the same time, interwoven with that was the Berkeley Circus, which was a spinoff of Major Chumley's Circus, which was, uh, you know, Reverend Chumley? Uh, we, I talked about Chumley in a previous one, I think, with one of my other guests. Anyways, that was a big inspiration. Chumley was a huge inspiration to me. When I was maybe 12 years old, he brought a circus to, to Willard Park in Berkeley. And there was this adult who brought this entire circus, 18 people or whatever, and set up a tent and done all of this stuff in this what I thought was an adult doing all of this stuff. Turns out he was 18 years old at the time. He was doing three of the acts in the show himself. He got all these artists together. He tried to get a loan from a bank in order to do it, and they wouldn't give him the $25,000 to put, up, put together a circus because they said you can never do that for $25,000. So he did it with the $5,000 he had. Somehow he scammed a circus tent and got all these performers to agree to go, most of them from Los Angeles up to San Francisco, and where they landed was three blocks away from my house, this park. And it was a brilliant show with him playing the ringmaster and also doing three different acts in the show, including the flaming zucchini, a fire eating act, where he pulled his big wild hair back into a ponytail. And we didn't realize till after seeing the show five or six times that that's him. It's the same guy. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> he was doing an Italian accent and became another character in the show. And was there a juggler in that performance? Uh, there were clowns that could juggle, uh, but not real, not not any real juggling act in the show. Who was the first other that really made an impression on you? Was there someone nearby or that you saw? I saw the Pickle Family Jugglers performing at UC Berkeley campus back before the circus formed. It was the Pickle Family Jugglers with uh, Larry Pizzoni and Wendy and uh, yeah, the yeah Judy Finelli or Judy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was pre pre circus days. And then the one who inspired me the most by far, A. Whitney Brown. I was probably 15 years old, something like that. Uh, going into San Francisco with my mother, we were going to ride the, the ferry boat across to Sausalito, which we did. But in working the line for the ferry boat was this gentleman, A. Whitney Brown. Yeah, we talked a little bit about him last time. He wants someday to be known as the Whitney Brown. Yeah. My name is A. Whitney Brown. One day I hope you'll be known as the Whitney Brown. Yeah, yeah. And did he have his dog? Because I heard he was one of the performers who had a a, a dog companion that performed with him. Uh, Brownie Breezebottom, yeah. Oh, okay, because I think uh, Mitchell could not remember the name of the dog from the, uh, one of our previous episodes. Well, that's, well, see, Whitney wasn't, wasn't doing the dog act. When I met him then, he was working with another guy, Paul. Paul was doing the dog act. Paul had the, the dog uh, and I became friends with Whitney because here was what Whitney was doing to me was amazing. It wasn't staged. It wasn't pre-planned. It didn't have that look to it. It had a, a spontaneous feel to it. And it was interactive with the crowd. 
he was being very, very funny in a way which didn't have the stagey uh, quality of the Pickle Family Jugglers, where they knew what they were saying and where their jokes were, and it was running through a routine, and it was clearly a routine. What Whitney was doing was more akin to stand-up comedy with juggling, and my skills were, at that time, already well beyond his, and he was doing this show, passing the hat, and making enough money to make a living doing it. And everything in me, I want, I want that. <laughs> and you were a teenager at the time? Yeah, about 15, maybe 15 years old, somewhere in there. And when did the desire to go to uh, the Clown College come into play? Well, Ringling Brothers came into, into town every year, and every year they did the audition. And so when I found out they, there was an audition, I, I went for a number of years to the audition even before I was old enough, 13, 14, 15, 16 years old, probably something like that. The final year, I wasn't able to do the audition, but that didn't matter. They already knew who I was. I was on their radar from way back when. And you ended up doing that that process? You went to the Clown College? And did you go on and tour with the circus? Did never toured with the circus. I was heartbroken at the end of Clown College when I wasn't offered a contract. <laughs> hmm. I mean, you were so talented. Why do you think... Uh... Could, well, about half of their decision was based, you know, the huge pageantry costumes that they had to wear. Yeah. They had to build those well in advance. About half their decision was who would fit the costumes. So that had me feeling a little better when I learned that. Right. And you're quite tall. So you were maybe too tall to... No, they have tall clowns and short clowns. I wasn't... Right. Their clown, who was my size uh, the previous year, didn't quit that year. <laughs> <laughs> I got you. The one hand-me-down outfit wasn't available. <laughs> Whatever. It's... Uh... And was there a juggling instructor the year you went, like someone in charge of teaching juggling? Um, Hugo and Manuel Zuniga. Hmm. Yeah. I remember seeing him in Circus Vargas, the Zuniga brothers. Yep, they're the ones. That was they. They were them. And did you have a desire to go on and, and clown, or was this all basically still focused around your desire to be a this juggler? Straight, straight out of high school, I, I uh, went right to Ringling Brothers. I got accepted and went. That was uh, the only college I applied to, the only one... <laughs> I was really interested in my last year of high school. I'd already finished all my requirements and I, and I thought about graduating early and I said, no, I could actually take all the classes I'd like to take here. Mm -hmm. Berkeley high has a, had at the time an incredible performing arts department. I guess it's pretty good now, but back then it was unbelievable. And so I took, um, stagecraft and costuming and, uh, tap dancing and, uh, the acting classes and all of these things that were that related to what I want to do and acrobatics and, uh, and any lessons from the, the Clown College that you sort of used through your career? Any kind of words of wisdom that really came in handy during your juggling career? No, no. <laughs> <laughs> any yeah. companions, any friends you made there? That Any lifelong friends? Oh, sure. I mean, there's we had a great group of folks. Uh, Charlie Fry and Mike Goudeau. Goudeau I already knew from the Bay Area and Robert Lind and I haven't, haven't stayed in touch with the others, but a bunch of other folks as well. When you started your performing career, were you ever part of a duo or were you always uh, a solo performer? Oh, back when I was 16, I did uh, a, a duo act and then I was part of a trio for a short bit there and worked with a, a couple other partners, but never stuck with that. So you were never part of the fly-by-night group with uh, Robert Lind and those guys, Michael Godot? Good friends with those guys and still quite close with Frank. Militello, Frank Miles, but uh, but no, not 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 ever. I guess I wasn't good enough to be part of it. <laughs> well, I think you've done okay on your own, Frank. So let's go back to your your career. You've done fine. So you get out of the. Those guys are good. My God, they were. <laughs> Don't cry. So you so you got out of the clown college experience. Unfortunately, you were not offered the chance to travel in a fifty foot uh, shipping container. <laughs> no, you the space you get in a in in those you were paid one hundred and fifty five dollars a week for whatever it was twelve shows a week, and out of that you paid ten dollars a week for your train space, which was, I think, three feet by six feet, and I'm over six feet tall. That means there's no possibility I was going to sleep. <laughs> full and how insulting is that? Asking for ten bucks back from your one hundred and fifty five dollar <laughs> a week salary. That was, well, that's what they did. And they and they could get, because of the Clown College, they could get people to agree to this because you go to Clown College for free and right. then, uh, with the agreement that if they offer you a contract, you'll accept it. Now, there were people who were offered contracts who did not accept it, but almost, I think everyone our year did. And yeah, they offered me a contract to go and be part of Circus World, but they 
did that about five months later. And by that point, I was making way more money doing street shows. You see, after my heart was broken by not getting a Ringling contract, I came back to the Bay Area, started putting together this street show, auditioned for and got in at Pier 39. And I was awful. I don't know how I passed an audition, but, uh, but I did. And who was in charge of the booking back in that day? That's before Scotty Meltzer, of course. Michael Riga or somebody, was that the name? Oh, Riga was for a while, and then it was taken over by Robert Nelson. Of course. Michael yeah. Riga was doing that. That's right. I forgot Michael Riga was in charge of that. Like I say, I just talked to Frankie and uh, Mitchell Barrett a couple of podcasts ago, and we went over this very fertile time in sort of the street performing world. Yep. So were you mainly a peer guy, or did you kind of move around and do all the different venues out there? for the tourists i was doing pier 39 the anchorage and the cannery were my main spots and i also did some true street shows to various places and different festivals and things like that but uh, and then scotty and i and a few different people were always uh, focused on the comedy aspect of it so i was going out and taking classes with a, a comedy writing guy john Cantu, who used to run the holy city zoo don't know if you ever knew him I know the name, but I don't think I've ever met him, no. Yeah. So then after some period of time, I was getting quite good at the street shows and having a lot of fun and doing joke writing and going out and doing these, these classes at the, out at the Holy City Zoo. And, and then I get John Cantu calls me aside and says, uh, I hear you've got a really funny show. You've been doing street shows and uh, juggling and, and all that. And I said, yes. And he says, I want to have you come out on Saturday night. He also booked the Holy City Zoo. Mm -hmm. which was one of the more prestigious but little hole-in-the-wall places, that, but it was where all the comics loved to hang out. And I'm being offered a Saturday night, Holy City Zoo. Oh, my goodness, I get out there. I was so excited. He says, yeah, I thought you could work out in front of the, crowd, in front of the club and build up a crowd <laughs> here. And this is Clement Street. It's not a place you would ever do street shows, but I sure. did tell him I'd be there, and I agreed to do it, and, and this is what he's telling me to do, and okay, I'll do what he's asking me to do. Out of my ass, I pull a, I, I pull a crowd out of nowhere. Right. Hey, you could pull a crowd here. And I pulled a crowd. I've got a crowd around me now. I'm starting up a show. I'm in, and I see John at the back of the crowd doing a finger across his neck, telling me to cut <laughs> it off, cut it off. And I just it was just getting the crowd going. It was just starting to get fun. And I stop and say, thank you very much. And, and I say, what's, what's up? Why, what, what? He says, I think you might have been stopping some of the people who were going to come into the club. And I laid into him. I, <laughs> I, this was the guy running the club and who I looked up to so much and running these comedy writing workshops and who knew all this stuff. I said, you idiot, at the end of the show, they're all coming into the club. What do you do? You cut me off. <laughs> you want me to come out here, attract people over to your club, but you want me to do my juggling thing? You want me to be a bad juggler is what you want, who sort of draws people over, but not quite. <laughs> There's no way I can succeed at doing this. I, and I thought you were inviting me over to be in the club to actually perform on stage. I was all excited about this. And right then, amazing Jonathan, who was inside on the show, comes out and says, hey, John, I can't stay for the second show. And he points me and says, you're on for the second show. <laughs> <laughs> and who, who are some of the contemporaries? Did you work with like Dana Carvey? and Dana Carvey was hanging out there at the time. Yeah. And Robin Williams and hung out with those guys also uh, more recently at the Throckmorton Theater in Mill Valley. Right up till, yeah, right up to when Robin died. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I hadn't seen him probably in the last 20 years or so of his life. I was uh, unfortunately not a guy who'd go out and see a lot of shows. Uh -huh. He would work regularly at the Throckmorton in Mill Valley. Right. But uh, my lazy self could not get out there, unfortunately. So It's a great spot to be working. I got to work with him a number of times there. But actually, way back in the day, I used to go out and do uh, improv at the Punchline in San Francisco. And one night, there's always tiny crowds there. 40 people would be a good night in this couple hundred seat room. And we're doing improv and playing a game called freeze tag. That's where the actors on stage uh, go on with, are doing a scene. And any point that, that any of the other artists want to, who are off stage, they can yell freeze. And they come on and the artists on stage freeze in whatever position they are in. The person calling freeze comes up and tags one of those people. That person leaves and the new guy takes over their body position. Right, and they can take the scene in a different direction if they That's want. That's the whole idea. You want to yeah. take, take, use the body position now to inspire the next scene. So I'm up there playing a game of freeze tag. I'm on stage with two other artists, and I hear freeze. And Robin comes up on stage and tags one of the other two people. Ah, uh, okay. Right. <laughs> and there, there we are, not 20 seconds into that scene, and you hear another freeze. <laughs> Whoopi Goldberg. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Tags the other person on stage. <laughs> right.
And now it's the three of us on stage doing improv. I stayed there for all of maybe a couple of minutes before I made an exit and said, excuse me, I, I need to run because I want to watch this as much as the rest of the crowd. And then the two of them did 15 minutes or whatever they did that was brilliant. And if it wasn't for that darn Billy Crystal, you would have been the other host of Comic Relief. There you go. <laughs> but once again, you did fine. Even after not uh, teaming up with Robin and Whoopi. Yeah, exactly. Career still continued to take off. And so you're doing street performing in the in the city. You're doing all these comedy experiences. Doing the other cafe and uh, Holy City Zoo and the Punchline and all of those spots in the evenings. And, and during the daytime, making enough money to live on uh, doing the street shows. Yeah, it was a brilliant time. And getting a lot of stage time, I imagine. Just a lot of time in front of the crowd. There's no other way to... That's what's so hard for newcomers to get now, is enough shows in front of the kind of crowds you want to be doing them in front of. Yeah, and also the crowds that have some attention span. So I think maybe now, the when you started out in the 80s, it was a sort of more of a novelty, and people would have give you more credit and watch longer before they got jaded, I think. Uh, yeah, there was a little less pull on their attention. You're walking down the wharf, you're not stopped every 20 feet by another street performer or somebody else vying for your attention in some way. It was a, a, a gentler time, a kinder time in America. Yeah, and you're right, with an attention span longer than 30 seconds. And some of the pitches, like the one at, the, I think it was either the Anchorage or the Cannery, it was very well protected from the elements. It was pretty quiet. And, and people could really work their comedy. Oh, yeah. Both of those, both of those quiet. Yeah. I see by your website, you're, you go by funnyfrank.com. To you, which is more important, the comedy or the juggling? And if you had to do just one, which would you choose, you think? No, if I had to do just one, I would choose to continue doing what I'm doing. <laughs> <laughs> if you were a tree, I guess it was one of those kind of questions. So. <laughs> if I was a tree, I would probably I would probably opt for the comedy as the tree if I was a tree, because it seems hard to do juggling as a tree. Yes, yeah, a lot less less motion. You know what? I the comedy has always been the primary thing for me. The 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 juggling has been a vehicle in order to engage the crowd and to keep them. But it's always been a comedy act built around a juggling act, and the juggling act is on the edge of falling apart. And that's what the whole purpose for doing that is for the comedy. And your character is always kind of a, I don't want to say goofy or gangly. But like you say, always on the verge of losing control. Was that kind of the style from the beginning, or did you kind of develop that as the crowd showed they appreciated that uh, part of your character? It developed over a period of time. When I first went, uh, the very, very, very first solo comedy juggling thing I did, I wasn't quite ready. I, I got all these bits and pieces of this idea together, and I and I was over at my cousin's house, and I was getting ready for this audition for Pier 39, and and sort of forming this show and my cousin is on the telephone with a friend of hers who's quite distraught because they'd lost their opening act for uh, two nights from now mm. they were at the hotel utah another club in san francisco but mainly a music venue and i overheard this conversation i could do it <laughs> right i got a show I, I got a show and i told her and what would it be and i told her all these ideas i had that were half formed and went out and did this show, and it was brilliant fun. The crowd was laughing, and I was loose, because I had to be, because I didn't have it all nailed down exactly what I was doing. And it created this whole magical, partially improvised and loose feel that was just, it was amazing. That was beginner's luck. If you, There's a lot of beginner's luck that happens. The first time you go on stage with something, there's something special and the extra energy behind it. And that, that is a, a real blessing when it occurs. I knew I had something and I went and I, so I finished rehearsing it and, and nailing it all down. And I figured I wanted to do a little more like what Whitney did as sort of a, a Barker style thing. And I hurry, 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 step right up. The show is about to begin. And it turned out I'm not Whitney. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I invited Frank Militello, one of the fly-by-nights who I was talking about earlier, still close friends with, I invited him out to see my show and to give me tips. And I was struggling out there. The shows were awful. So I'm, I asked him to come out, and, and I told him all about this show after I'd done that other show as well at the Hotel Utah that it had gone so well. And when I said, what can I do different? And he says, Frankie, I'm just going to tell you some of what you told me two months back after you did that other show. How brilliant it was because it was loose and you hadn't over-rehearsed everything, and it was uh, easy, and you were having fun with the crowd, and it was 
partially improvised. In a way, my heart kind of sunk. It went, oh my gosh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that was what was magic about it. <laughs> and realized I was going to need to massively rework this show and let go of all the lines that I thought would be funny that weren't. Well, I think a lot of your comedy comes from like your energy and your character. No, what it truly was, was when I realized what I was, this was working uh, with Lee Letchworth. We gathered a show for a little while. We did a Renaissance fair. And during that, I started laughing at myself during it. <laughs> right, right. Kind of village <laughs> idiot thing. And that was a big shift for me when I started laughing at myself uh, and not taking myself so seriously. And it was during that time that I realized what I am is an awkward juggler. The reason I learned juggling was to overcome this sense of awkwardness. And it didn't. And it didn't. <laughs> didn't overcome that. Well, most good comedy comes from truth, right? It comes from the truth of what you're feeling or what, you know, people are feeling about you. And you were able to play that into your routine. And of course, that's still a main part of your personality today on stage is sort of a goofy. Very much so. It's it's taking something that's real and that that you're spending all your energy trying to cover up. And when you don't try and cover it up, it becomes your your greatest strength. Let's talk a little bit about uh, a beginner's luck again, or maybe the advantageousness of timing. Because at one point you were doing a, a trip to New York, I think it was just as a vacation, and somehow you were seen on the, on the streets of New York for a, a big opportunity. I decided to take a, a vacation, my first vacation. I saved up enough money doing street shows, and I always wanted to go back to New York, to the East Coast. So I planned a vacation. Didn't even bring my unicycle with me. I brought some props with me, but not my unicycle, not all my stuff. And I found out that uh, Fly By Night were in Philadelphia. That was just Frank... Melatello and uh, Mike Goudeau at the time. Or was it? No, it was Robert Lynn back then. Before, when It went from a four-person troop to a two-person troop. Anyways, there was two of them. Mike Goudeau and Frank were working in at Six Flags in Philadelphia. I thought I'll start there, and then maybe I'll go off to New York after that. So I fly off to Philadelphia, hang out with those guys. While I'm there, Goudeau ends up on the phone with Tony Duncan. Okay, juggler. Another yeah. juggler, and he lives East in New Coast. York. Yeah. And I say, Tony, I know from San Francisco. He lived there for many years and we were friends and I didn't even know he was there. So I get on the phone with him and say, Tony, do you know of a decent place? I'm looking for, uh, doesn't that be super cheap, but someplace reasonably priced in New York. I'm on vacation for a couple of weeks. And he says, you have to come stay with us, Frankie. Right. Nice. He's a mensch. Yeah, that Tony. And I get to his place and he's living in a loft. I hadn't seen loft living before. And you were talking about that earlier, the different places I lived. For many years after that, I lived in lofts at the corner of Houston and Broadway in New York. He and this ventriloquist, Steve, forgetting his last name, uh, anyway, Danish uh, performer, ventriloquist, Steve Chain, were living there in this huge loft. And I went and stayed with them. And that was amazing. And while I was there, I had this new device. It was brand new that you could just buy right around that time. You could pick up your phone messages. This was amazing. <laughs> okay. By playing a beeper into the into a telephone, you could yep, pick yep. your messages back home. And I just bought this device before this trip. And now I was doing that. I was picking up messages back in California. And there's some producer who's trying to reach me to something about an audition for a show up in Toronto. They want me for a show in Toronto. I'm hoping I'll go there. And after a number of phone calls back and forth and missing these producers and calling back and forth, I get through to them. And they are in... New York City. Okay. Timing. Exactly. Timing. And so now here I am in New York. And they say, if you're in New York, we're in New York. We'll do an audition tomorrow. We have a, tomorrow afternoon. We have an empty theater. You can come in and show us your show. And I said, kind of swallowing and getting nervous at an empty theater. <laughs> right, right. Comedy show, right? Comedy. I'd never performed a comedy show for nobody and uh, was nervous about the idea of doing that. And I said, if I could find a place to do it tomorrow night. Hmm in front of a crowd instead of tomorrow afternoon? Could you guys come out and see it tomorrow night? I said, they said, yeah, but how are you going to do that? I said, let me work on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because comedy with no audience is pretty deadly. Yeah, and, and it was scary to me. I'd never done an audition like that. I, I could yeah. do it now, no problem, and talk somebody through where the crowd's laughing and applauding, and now they're doing this. Whatever. I could do it, I think. But, uh, but it's much more fun to show somebody than to tell them. Of course. So now I hang up the phone, and Tony and Steve are both off for the day. And I'm on my own in New York. It's Friday in New York City, and I start looking in the Village Voice to find out comedy places to see what I can find out. Right, to do the show. Jim, a friend of mine uh, from the San Francisco Comedy Competition, was playing that night. That Late the, late in the afternoon, it was a perfect thing. It was a 6.30 show or something at this little place in the village close to where we were staying. 
And so off I go to watch Jim's set. And after that, I say, Jim, I'm looking for a place. It was the wrong place for me to do it. It wouldn't have been anything like what I was looking for. I said, yeah. I'm looking for a place in New York. He says, come around, kid. I'll show you some of the clubs. And we went off to three or four different clubs. And we walk into the comic strip on First Avenue. And this was it. I could feel it. It had the same feel as a couple of rooms I played back in the Bay Area. Oh, this, be, this is where I want to do this. Right. Who books the room? Somebody says, oh, he happens to be here tonight. His name is Lucian Hold, and he's over there at the bar. And then I walked up and did what I got told over the years by dozens of different comedians was impossible. Right, <laughs> okay. I walked up to Lucian Hold, an unknown, on a Friday night and talked my way onto the first show on Saturday, <laughs> the, the biggest show of the week for a club as an unknown. I found out from these comics, no, you go and you hang out at, uh, at the comic strip, you go and you hang out for for a couple of months on Tuesday night at midnight or one. You get on the list and you don't get on. And after you get on there, then you work your way up. And eventually, maybe you get to do Saturday. Did you drop some names? What kind of major schmooze did you pull off there? I said, I'm uh, in town. I don't know anything. I am looked around at some clubs. I've got this big audition tomorrow night, and I want to do it here. I looked at a number of clubs. This is where I want to do it. And... And he caught it. He caught what I was, my excitement nice. by it and the and that this is the right room. I looked at these other clubs. They're not the right room. This, your place is. And it was Broadway producers who were going to come in. And did you have a unicycle? Did you borrow a unicycle? Or, or I had to borrow Tony's unicycle to do the audition. And I felt kind of bad about that because he'd been in New, Year, in New York for a couple of years trying to get a break. And here I waltz into town for a couple of weeks. Yeah. And then after one week, I need to leave because I got this big break in New York. There's two words, right? That's showbiz. Right? Yeah. That's showbiz. Now, let's talk a little bit about your unicycle routine because this is a, a routine you're very famous for where uh, you get two people up on stage. Lots of people are really famous for my routine. <laughs> well, that's why I want to talk about it because I've heard from many sources, not from you, but from other sources, that you were the guy that pretty much started this idea of, of course, not drilling on a unicycle, but getting so much comedy from having volunteers help you on and appear not to be able to, to ride. Uh -huh. What's the evolution of that routine in your memory? I remember Dr. Hot, Hot and Neon used, Dr. Hot was doing a, uh, did a routine juggling on a, a tall unicycle, juggling torches on a tall unicycle, doing it in the middle of his act. And I always thought, no, when I saw that, I, I wanted to learn it and I, it was a closer. And yes, I got a way, way more comedy out of it than he did. He did some fun stuff with it. It was a very different routine than mine. And then you went to Europe, I heard, and then all of a sudden... People saw that and go, yeah, that is a good finale. I think I will do that too. Well, it was at the time there was the, I went, this was after Sugar Babies. Mm -hmm. I toured around for three years with the show Sugar Babies. Yeah, we'll get back to that too. I just want to talk about this because of course this is a big part of your career coming up uh, with Sugar Babies. Just for fun to go around Europe and do street shows. I wanted to try them there. I'd heard about doing street shows in Europe and I get over to Amsterdam and there was these amazing jugglers covering the lights of plane, the main pitch, one of the main pitches there. And they were these squatter kids, these guys who didn't have real shows, but they were amazing jugglers. Mikhail and uh, another guy, Frank, and uh, all these folks who were out there trying to make money doing street shows. And I asked, how does it work out here? What's Is there a, uh, a cue for the pitches? No, you just do whatever you want, whenever you want. It was <laughs> free for all. And so yeah. he, I said, really? Okay, that sounds great. I would start up a show and they'll have the whole lines of playing around me <laughs> and then I'd break <laughs> and it would go back to being how it was. And then I'd do another show and the whole crowd would gather around because I had a funny show. And sure. And I did probably four shows that first night and had a brilliant time, made a, a bunch of money. And I come out the next day and there was, you know, probably three or four other juggler juggling acts at the time out there. And they were doing as much of my act as they could remember. <laughs> <laughs> right there in front of me <laughs> well it's nice to know your act will live on even after uh, you've retired But yeah exactly and I toured around did five months traveling all over Europe and had the same effect in a lot of places and I took those folks aside and said listen these are routines I've come up with and I've done and for the most part they actually listened and created their own routines I said take the format of it but don't take right. the actual jokes and the actual routines and my tricks do your stuff and make it funny like this I don't think anybody else can do that last throw like you do like what do you like a last triple that you basically catch by your foot or something oh, and that was my favorite I that's still one of my favorite tricks I ever did it was for street shows it was a triple under the leg well first of all it built up to a nice place it was a talking about right before I do my hat pitch before I did my final finale. And I'd say somebody gave me 
the biggest bill I've ever gotten, a $20 bill, and I drop it in my hat. Say That was the biggest tip I'd ever gotten, and that was the best show I'd ever done until this one. <laughs> Big laugh. Okay. And then I put the hat and the 20 on my head. Now I do my finale, the, the under the leg with the torches. I do a triple with the torch, underturn it, and I have to bend way down to catch it. So I got the, the triple under the leg with my right hand, both torches over to my right hand so I can catch the last throw away down le- with low with my left hand and bending over to catch it. The hat falls off my head. And this is every show. And then as the hat falls off my head, the two hor- torches from my right hand go into my left and I catch the hat down but right before it falls down and the crowd goes nuts. And I go up in a big triumphant yay with my arms over my head <laughs> and the $20 bill that I put in there slowly tumbles down to the front. <laughs> <laughs> classic frank olivier yeah and somebody goes and picks it up and they come in they put it back in the hat and i say now get out another one yeah and then... there you go hey let's go back to your your uh time in new york though so these these producers come out and see you and yep. uh, imagine the audition goes well and what's it lead to oh well that was a fun story on its own i mean the producer come out they see the show the next day i get a call from michael davis who was uh, who had been on the show and was ready to leave and Michael says, they love you. They want you to, to go up to two weeks. That was just going to be two weeks in Toronto. Right. For Sugar Babies. Yeah. For the show. And how much are you going to ask him for? And I don't know. I'm a street performer. And I, I don't know. $1,000 a week, he says. <laughs> Twice that. Right. Say, Twice that. And he says, and don't, don't settle for anything less. Right. <laughs> Not an hour later, I'm in the producer's office. This is... A, on a Sunday, I guess, probably. It was right afterwards. Yeah, it was it. So I'm there, and they're wanting me to fly up for Tuesday show in... Uh, Monday was off, and Tuesday was when I would do the show, the first show with Mickey Rooney and Ann Miller, the show called Sugar Babies. It's a, a musical done in the style of an old burlesque show, and it had two variety spots in the show. I was taking over one of the spots now. It had run on Broadway for many years, up to this point. It had run on Broadway a long, long time. Yeah, exactly. It was a Broadway touring show. And so... I say twice that. He says, don't settle for anything less. Now I'm in the producer's office and they're saying, you're great. We love you. Here's the airline tickets to go. Here's your contract. It pays $1,200 a week. That was a lot of money to me. Mm-hmm. And I swallow real hard. <laughs> <laughs> uh, if I'm going to come in and do this, I'm going to need to get $2,000 a week. And they say 2000 They go in the back and they talk and they talk amongst themselves and they come out and they say, okay, $2,000. Uh, we will here. Here's your airline ticket. We'll have the new contract for you when you get up to Toronto. The company, the company manager, will have that for you up there, and uh, good to go. And you'd work with Michael in San Francisco, so you knew him pretty well. I didn't know Michael very well. I didn't know him hardly at all, but he knew my work. He liked my act at the time because uh, I was the guy who was really funny and not doing his act at the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very different too. Very different energies, yeah. Different energies and uh, Michael and I are good friends now. I know him much better now, but uh, back then I didn't I didn't know him that well, but he was being kind to me and he had recommended me for the show because he liked me because he could have gotten any number of there was a huge number of people doing his act at the time because he'd been on hosted Saturday night live over and over again, been on the, the Tonight show and the Letterman show and everything. And that was his big break was uh, Sugar Baby. So you were basically following in his footsteps. Yes, exactly. So he was uh, giving me this, handing over the show to me. So now I get up there to Toronto and I'm one of the first people I meet is this old comic, Mickey Deems. There was these burlesque comics. They were actually from vaudeville burlesque time. And, and these were the guys who knew how to do a sketch like nobody's business. And oh, they were phenomenal with what they did. So I meet Mickey Deems, and we hit it off right away. And five minutes in, how much you getting, kid? <laughs> right. He's the union. I found out also he's the union rep for the show. He's the one that. Oh, okay. Right. And uh, Agva, American Guild of Variety Artists, were covering Ringling Brothers and this one show, <laughs> and, and the ice shows, I guess. So. Yeah, the Disney shows. Yeah. So he says, "How much you getting, kid?" And I say, "I'm making two thousand dollars a week." <laughs> and he says, "Including or not including per diem?" Oh, right. What's per diem? <laughs> that's my next question because I, I never toured with the show. I never, I didn't know any of this. So, yeah. Well, kid, that's your living expenses. You see, the union has a, a minimum amount of living expenses that, that they have to pay. The, the shows have to pay. That's $495 a week that'll cover your hotel and your food for when you're on the road. Now it's not a half hour after that. 
I get called into the company manager's office. He's showing me the contract. Here's how it breaks down. 1605, uh, 1505 a week. Oh, that's the per diem, right. Here's how it breaks down. 1505 a week salary, 495 a week per diem. I said, we negotiated a $2,000 salary. There's a union <laughs> minimum on the per diem, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> oh, now he's got this contract, and he's he's got the whole contract there. This is the second contract they've been pushing at me that I turned down. <laughs> he goes in the back, and they call up the company, they call up the, the producers, and they're back and forth. And he says, "Okay, we'll have it for you tomorrow." <laughs> <laughs> well, you stuck to your guns, though. You got what you deserved. You know, you got what was fair. You would have paid, you would have done it for less. With, yeah. with the exact information I needed coming to me minutes before I needed it each time. That was Michael right. Michael telling me twice that. I would have settled for four ninety five you know, for the twelve We're gonna twelve hundred with the with the per diem built into it. Yeah. Minus the four ninety five. It was just fun getting all the information right when I needed it. This is a couple thousand seat hall. I'd never played a couple thousand seats. And my first two shows were not what I was hoping for. First two or three shows. I was trying to dial it in. I was and everyone's coming up and being so nice in the company. It's so good to have you here and your act is so funny and it's you can feel them being kind, and I oh I hate that. That's <laughs> nothing worse than people being right, right, right. Kind, almost pity. Kindness mingled with pity a little bit. Yeah, almost pity, but it, but they're wanting to be nice, and that part is nice. Yeah. But, but and you're not sucking totally. You're just not killing it. Yeah. I was not uh, not doing what I wanted, what I was hoping to do there, and what I know how I can get a crowd going. And but it was a different size crowd, and it was a different rhythm to it, and needed a little tweaking and. And within the third or fourth show, I had it, and that became one of my favorite places ever to perform anywhere. Those crowds coming out for a comedy show, uh, watching Mickey Rooney and Ann Miller and all of that. and Yeah, warmed up, ready to go, huh? They're warmed up, ready to go, and they are primed to the primest. They're excited to be there and excited to see what's happening. And you could draw them along with the smallest little gesture, and they're all screaming. Those are the fun shows where they're pulling it out of you rather than you pulling it out of them. <laughs> and I've heard that, that Mickey Rooney wants you to be funny, but not too funny. Is that right? Oh, he was always very supportive. He's a, Was he? Good. Well, mostly always. <laughs> <laughs> Any Mickey Rooney stories you can uh, impart? Okay, he comes out. Yeah, he would run around backstage in his underwear a lot of the time. And, he come, and you hear this scream from Annie's dressing room. And he comes out of his dressing room, out of her dressing room. She hears the scream, ah! He, <laughs> he, he runs up and says, guess what I just did to Annie? I just did this. I said, hey, Annie, watch this. And he reaches down to his underwear and squeezes his, his down in that area. You hear a loud, right, right. You hear a loud crunch, and yeah. then he laughs and pulls oh. out a, a little package of crackers he put in there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's a good <laughs> bit. <is> Mickey Rooney. <laughs> he was funny, and he was a, a ball of energy, and he was... Uh, brilliant in that show and it wasn't until a couple years into the three-year run that mickey deems the gentleman i told you about mm-hmm. pointed out to me mickey rooney's greatness and i hadn't it hadn't really occurred to me he says well you know he's not a vaudeville guy so yeah so he goes, no he's playing the role of the top banana the top banana is the best comedian on the stage and he's playing that role. He didn't do this his whole life, and he's doing it as well as somebody who has done it their whole mm. life because he's a fun. Because he came from the movies. He was a movie guy. That was just who he was because that's what the role he was always playing around there. And gotcha. it hadn't really occurred to me until sort of that point. Oh my God, is this guy good? And at one time, he was the most popular movie star in the world. Yeah, I'm, I'm not. Yeah, exactly. He's... And not a big guy. What was he, like five feet tall or so? Or. Five one. Yeah, he's a short guy. Yep. And so, where'd you tour around to? You toured for three years. What kind of places did you play? A couple thousand seat halls across the country, and usually a couple weeks at a time. In the end, we got down to three or four days at a time. That was the the rough part of it. But mostly, it was mm-hmm. a couple weeks up to in some places four or six weeks. And what brought it to an end? And what did you decide to move on, or did they the show come to a close? Uh, how did how did it end? Well, it built up from there actually, and uh, built up to. I was on the show for the first couple of years with uh, with Ron Lucas, ventriloquist, uh, yeah. and he and I, uh, close buddies, and uh, that was way fun having a, a comrade on the road. Yeah, and a great guy, a real nice guy, yeah. Sweetheart, yeah. And then he left the show, and they gave me both spots for a period of oh. time. 
Right. I had now I was doing about 25 minutes of the show, maybe more than that. Yeah, about 25 minutes of the show myself, mm -hmm. just me. And that's a big part of a Broadway show to have yeah. solo on stage. And the first when they did that, the second spot, which was the one Ron had been in, is the prime spot on the show. One of the prime spots on the show. It's right after the McHugh medley, it's right before the end of the show. And again, I, I struggled to figure out how to make it work to get my second introduction and to come out right after the McHugh medley, the, the Jimmy McHugh songs. This is what everyone came to see in the whole show. Mm. Mickey Rooney and Ann Miller singing and dancing and doing uh, right. 15 minutes on stage together, just the two of them singing songs, him at the piano, her dancing and them dancing together. And the, the, just brilliant. This is what everyone came to see. And I worked it and worked it and tried to figure out what kind of an introduction and how to come on stage for the second one. And, and after, I think it was a week or two weeks, I nailed it. No music. They'd been playing me on. They'd been giving me introductions for them. Please welcome back. And da, 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 da. Yeah, yeah, yeah. At the end of the McHugh medley, blackout. No music. I stepped to the center of the stage. I got three clubs in my hand. I'd, I'd done the first spot with five balls and something else. And, and the, the lights and a follow spot hits me, center stage, dead quiet. And I'm there with three clubs standing looking at the crowd and I just wait <laughs> and they just given their biggest often the biggest applause of the sh of the entire show had been right before that and I wait they wait till that dies down just enough and then they hit me with the follow spot and there's this poor schmuck that has to follow <laughs> <laughs> right, right. and they were punching up that aspect of it with nothing no words no music no nothing it's just the starkness of it <laughs> telegraphed Oh my God, this guy has to follow that. <laughs> and they just start laughing and applauding. And it would often be the, would often be a bigger applause than Mickey and Ann just got for that section. Right. Cause they could, they could feel what you're experiencing. And <laughs> exactly. Go <with> you. <laughs> and finally I say, there's a few, few, few tricks I forgot to show you. Huge laugh. <laughs> and now I'm off into my routine. But that was the, the key to making that second spot work. So for that, for that one year, you're doing both spots. Was that, that's a lot of. A lot of pressure. No, that was only for half of that first year. Half of the year. It yeah. was it was great, and it was a bump in pay and uh, all this stuff. And then they, I got cut back to doing one spot when they brought in some guy who thought he was a ventriloquist. Uh, uh, I don't even know what ever became of him. Jeff Dunham. Oh, Jeff Dunham. I think he's done okay for himself. <laughs> okay. He went on to become the highest paid uh, comedian in the world for. <laughs> yeah, the highest touring act in the world, oh, playing stadiums God. and with his. Uh, terrorist dummies and stuff like that exactly yeah. his uh, and he was always strong and good and, and has a phenomenal business mind on him he was four walling places uh, before he joined sugar babies and then afterwards as well and back then it was on paper mailing lists sending out postcards and he had that down all the all of that that whole process of collecting and building mailing lists and uh selling tickets and four walling places and had it working events are the best they have a partner they don't have to split the money yeah. <laughs> the, best, the best of both worlds. Well said, exactly. Hey, so you, you do this show in Broadway. You need to move on a little bit because you have so much stuff to cover. Oh. Another famous show you did that I've heard about is you went to Just for Laughs, which is a, a comedy festival in Montreal. I actually got invited there twice, and they don't usually do that, from what I understand. But yeah. And how did that go over for you? Because I, I, what I heard, it went over very well. Oh, those are huge shows, the standing ovations for, yeah, and brilliant fun. Another place where people are coming there for that, and you get to be the different one who is also offering this, uh, the, the visuals. So at this point in your career, you have good video, you've done this Broadway tour, you're doing a lot of different kinds of shows. Is this around the time you did The Tonight Show, or is that a bit a bit later? A little bit later, but uh, no, it was around the same time, I guess, yeah. The Tonight Show came, uh, I'm not sure whether before or after my first Just for Laugh spot. Yeah, I got the, the Tonight Show was uh, a career moment as well. And you had an interesting experience because you went on first with Gary Shandling. Tell, tell us how you end up doing two different uh, spots with the same routine. How'd that, how'd that come about? Uh, I got invited on the first time and it was with Gary Shandling. And, and then I got a call uh, just a very few weeks later saying, want to have you back on with Johnny. Johnny saw the spot and, and wants to do it. Because you were doing the unicycle bit, and I remember... Oh, unicycle, having having uh, the host bring me the, the torches when I'm up on the unicycle and then leaning on their head. Same thing I did with uh, Howie Mandel on uh, America's Got Talent. And of course, Gary Shandling's all about his hair, like, don't touch yeah, my hair. that's what he kept saying the entire time <laughs> through. Not the hair, Frank, not the hair, not the hair. And he was trying to be funny, and uh, he was okay at being funny, but it wasn't, it wasn't Johnny. Johnny. That's incredible, though, that Johnny saw you. So how'd that feel? to get that call that hey not only are you on with gary shandling but now johnny saw you he wants you on again with him 
How's that go over? That was uh, career high among several, but that was definitely a, a career high. And was it a game changer? Did you did you notice a bump in your career? How'd that play yeah, out? It doubled my price overnight and was uh, working uh, working a ton of shows. Yeah, yeah, that was uh, that. Everything changed there. Now, you did know, you know, a bunch of TV shows. Unfortunately, nowadays, there's not as much places for, for jugglers to perform. And a lot of times they end up performing on these sort of talent competitions. A long time after your Tonight Show appearance, you ended up performing on America's Got Talent. Right. W- was that a good experience for you? How'd that go? I, I was not that fond of the, the whole organization and all of that. You're stepping into a den of wolves, and it's not really a talent competition. It's a reality show about a talent competition is a more accurate way to describe it. That's a good way to describe it, yeah. A lot of backstory, yeah. I don't know. It's a weird, weird experience. They put everyone in the – treat everyone like crap, shove them all together. <laughs> right. Hope that conflicts come about and uh, put people in high-pressure situations on purpose – hoping that uh, things will pop and they can get it on video and include it in their stories. It's just, it's, it's a strange, it's unlike anything else in show business. Everything else in show business is everyone working towards this show together. And there, there's people actively felt like undermining and just a weird, weird energy. I didn't, didn't like it. It just felt foreign to me. I always felt too, like this the one show where most shows, everybody's on the same uh, page. They all want you to do good. Yeah, everyone's wanting the, each other to do well because it helps the whole yeah. show. And here they don't care if you're good, bad. Like, we don't care if you're so bad that that's good because it's so bad and embarrassing. Right. As opposed to us all working for you to be successful. Exactly. Now, this is the story I heard, okay, about your America's Got Talent appearance. Yeah. So this is this is side talk from no one involved. Uh-huh. Because you went on and you, you killed it. You went on with Howie. You did the, the, the unicycle thing. Right. Uh-huh. Really super strong. Well, first of all, they wanted me to do stun guns on the unicycle, which is what yeah. I, what they first saw me doing. And I was going to do that. And But Frank Militello had given me – Frank had given me that routine. He was right. doing the corporate shows, the speaking engagement thing, and was aware that he didn't, he didn't really have a, a, a presence in the entertainment world because he's doing all these speaking engagements. Yeah. So he told me, you could be the face of doing stun guns out in the entertainment world. And he gave me this, you know, the idea and uh, helped me with the props and all of it for juggling running stun guns. And then day before going to do the audition or a couple days beforehand for America's Got Talent for their the, the tape audition. It's actually a TV show. It's not an audition really at all. It's a, Right. And I called up Frank and said, now you're sure about this? He says, I've been being a jerk. I should have been trying to do this myself. I just have been too lazy to do it. I said, well, I'll talk to them and see if we can get you on. And I got him onto the show and he did stun guns. I did torches. Yeah, he was in a, a, a pool of water. Is that right? Like a little, little waiting pool. He came up with that backstage and trying to make his routine <laughs> better. And I helped him find the tub for it. And yeah, we were all working together. He said, how can I find a tub? I go, well, let's just look around. There's bound to be something here. Sure enough. Right. It was like a kiddie waiting pool or something. Yeah. It wasn't. It was a, uh, uh, like a file box. The first thing we found. Oh, <laughs> And, and they told us, you have to stay in this room. I go, yeah, we got to stay in this room, right. And so I'm off wandering <laughs> around and looking looking and opening up doors and Frank reluctantly following me. And But we found something that would work. And now he's got to finish for his routine. <laughs> it was there at the show. Wow, that's, wow. It happened that last minute. That's pretty amazing. It was. It, that's a great idea, too. I think the juggling of the stun guns became another thing that became a popular, I'll call it a meme, but a you know, a prop that people started using, the stun guns. Right, uh-huh. And he was aware of that, that when he came up with it, that was what it was going to become. And, and that was why he offered it to me, because he'd used so much of my material, and we'd been friends, and yeah. shared stuff back and forth over the years. He wanted me to be doing it. Then last minute, I'm telling the producers, no, I'm not going to do that routine. Once he got in and was doing it, then I, I was not going to juggle stun guns. I was going to do torches, which is a little bit harder sell. The hardest part was that they wanted the 90 seconds, and... As I tried and tried to get it down to a 90-second routine, I couldn't do it until I came with, up with what I did on that. And now they give people longer than that. They're doing three-minute spots or whatever for the right people, and they switch yeah. down the length of the spots, and there's lots of magicians doing it because they can have long enough to actually do it. But 90 seconds is a bear to get on and off, and, and that was the, that's what it was for season six. You do 90 seconds. Yeah, like you said, it's not really a competition anymore, and they can bend the rules if they want you to do more time. Well, or... now, but, but at the time, they were being quite stringent on that and right. uh, I finally figured out how to do the tall unicycle routine in 90 seconds and that's what I did on the show was I first got Howie up and told him I'm going to need help handing me these on the unicycle and that I tell them 
They don't tell me. I tell them. The act begins when I get on the unicycle. <laughs> <laughs> right. The other stuff's with the judge. So that's partly the judge's time. Exactly. And they also said I couldn't use the judge and I couldn't use it. Absolutely not. No, you can't use Howie. Can't use Howie. Can't use Howie. You're going to be using... Uh, Nick Cannon? Nick Cannon, yeah. They say you, you could use Nick Cannon. So I look through some of his stuff. Okay, I can make it work. It would be much funnier with Howie. No, no, can't yeah. use... Then the day of the taping, they call up. We've got a problem. Oh. And I say, what's the problem? They say, Nick Cannon, his hair product is flammable. It's too dangerous. <laughs> we can't do it. Right, right. We should use Howie, my first go-to. No, we can't use Howie. Have you even talked to Howie about this? No, we don't have to. We don't allow the judge. We don't do this with the judges. We don't. I actually called up Barry Friedman during this time. They said, um, can't use Howie. You can use Nick. Uh, but then they couldn't use Nick because his hair product. I said, well, try, can you do this? Do me a favor. Because anything that has alcohol in it for the hair product is flammable. But it's only flammable for a short bit till the alcohol evaporates. She says, oh, yeah. I said, can you do me a favor? Go to his hairdresser, get some of this gel put it on a piece of paper, thin, a thin layer on the paper, and let it sit for 10 minutes and then try and light it. If it lights on fire, we would never do torches near them. That would be far too dangerous. <laughs> but the alcohol is going to evaporate. She says, yeah. that sounds great. She comes back to me 10 minutes, you know, 20 minutes later and says, uh, <laughs> we can't do it because it's flammable. And I said, oh, so it lit on fire after 10 minutes? She, oh, I didn't have to do that. The hairdresser told me it's flammable. Did you do? Okay. <laughs> this was the level. And then she said, but, but we got great news. We come up with a way you can do it with Nick. This will be really funny. He'll come out with a football helmet on. Oh. Mm. He'll come out with a football helmet and you do the whole thing and you lean on the helmet and the helmet will protect him from the flames and it should all be fine. Dreadful. Yeah. And I said, no. And she said, why? <laughs> I said, it's a terrible, it's a terrible idea. <laughs> well, I didn't tell her that. I said, she said, right. wouldn't that, couldn't that be funny? I said, it could be funny, but that's not the routine I've developed and it's it, and i'm not going to do it she said why not i said because the whole premise of the routine is that i'm so off balance on the unicycle i grab onto whatever happens to be there what happens to be there is his head if he comes out with a football helmet everything's already pointing to his head it's not funny i'm not going to do it yeah and she says do it or you're not on the show Ooh. and i said okay then i'm not on the show hung up the phone. nice now i'm down in los angeles for this trip to come down to do this and all's ready and i was all rolling and everything's happening and now it's not oh i did put in one last call uh, saying it would be before hanging up saying it would be brilliant to do this with uh, with howie yeah and then i hang up and i'm sitting there in my room that's when i called up barry saying you guys worked with howie mandel do you have a cell phone for him and he says yeah i mean would you be up for calling up and just telling just tell him i'm a working pro and tell him what the routine is i don't want you to push him to do anything he doesn't want to do or anything. I just want him to know what, Right. just that this isn't some schmuck wanting to do it. It's a working pro. That's all I wanted the word to go through and that he might be interested. Barry said he hadn't talked to him in a long time, wasn't really up for it. I said, no problem. As soon as I hung up, the phone rings and it's the producer saying, you can use Howie. <laughs> and of course he had a bald head at the time, which is always a nice, yeah, exactly. funny thing. You're known as a guy who's really good at working with volunteers. In fact, one of the selling features like on your website and when you do corporate events is that you make the volunteers the stars of your show. What's your philosophy when working with volunteers? Does I pretty much sum it up, make them the stars? Or how did you find that you, the way to treat them is, uh, you know, treat them kind of funny to get the most laughs out of it? You're kind of a master of it, you know, taking it to that level of using them, but not using them. You know what I mean? You want to, you want to abuse them, but you want it to be in enough fun so that they right. are having fun too. And at the end of it, you want them to leave the hero. Now, let's talk about some of the famous volunteers you've had to some, during some of your shows. I'll bring up a name, and maybe there's a story that goes along with it. Maybe you can end the podcast with a couple of high points sure. uh, of using volunteers. Uh, one of my favorites, uh, Bill Murray. That was probably the best one ever. Was he as good as I'm hoping he's going to be, Bill Murray, as a sport? He was better than best. Uh, let me tell you the story. Uh, this could be okay. a closing story for the whole thing. So I'm doing a magic, pre-show magic. I, do, I like to do walk around in advance of the show, get to know people. At the San Francisco Golf Club, this place so exclusive, it's not even on the map. You can't find it without knowing where it is. And San Francisco Golf Club, I'm doing magic before the show, and there's Bill Murray. I'm doing a few tricks for him, and I go over and I tell the, the fellow that hired me, he said, Bill Murray's here. He said, yeah. I said, I'm bringing up volunteers for my spot. I want to see if he'll come up and do it. He says, absolutely not. Mr. Murray, <laughs> Mr. Murray is our guest, and I don't want to ask him to perform. I already told you how it ends, but uh, you, but that's how it starts. And I say, I came up with the right answer, which is he's also an old comedy guy. And we're doing a comedy show and using volunteers to not invite him might be wrong. He might want to do it. Yeah, exactly. And he says, who you could be right, <laughs> but no pressure because he knows how I can get people to do things they would never normally do. And I say, sure, OK, sure. I'll, I'll go with that. I just went from absolutely not to I can ask the guy. 
go up and yeah. say, Bill, I'm doing a comedy show after dinner and uh, bring up a couple volunteers. If, if, if you'd like to be one of those people, it'd be, it'd be honored. I'm a huge fan. And he says, he says, usually I like to steer away from that sort of thing. I've been told no pressure. So I say, absolutely fine. No problem. He says, but I shot such a lousy game of golf today. I deserve it. Yeah. Bring me up. Break me over the coast. This is going to be fun. Just like he ramps his energy up in the movies. He does right, it in right, person right. as well. <laughs> kind of intense. It went from zero to 60 and that. Okay, we're there. <laughs> Go over and tell the guy who... Bill wants to do it. I didn't find out till later, but he went up to Bill and said, you don't have to. No, 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 I want to. <laughs> right, right, right. It's this long, thin room. I'm way up at one end. It's not the best setup, but it's, but the show is going really well. I'm just off at the beginning of the show, three club routine, the helicopter, the club on the chin balancing trick. I'm back of the room. I hear, don't do it. <laughs> Recognize okay. the voice. He's all the way yeah, far yeah. end. And I realized right away what he's doing. Sure, he's heckling you. Yeah. He's heckling me, but he's not just heckling me. He's also an old Second City guy. And one of the rules in Second City is you don't bring somebody else into the scene. They bring themselves into the scene. If he's going to mm. be part of my show, it's because he brings himself into my show. That's what he's doing. Right, right, right. So I hear, don't do it. And I stop juggling and I drop my arms from my side and I say, <laughs> Mr. Bill Murray heckling me. Usually I try to discourage hecklers, but this is an honor, Mr. Murray. You go right ahead. <laughs> and he did through the entire yeah show he right he started heckling. <laughs> actually there's another part of this when i'm setting the whole thing up the uh, fellow that hired me says this is a very conservative club i'm not going to tell you what routine to do or not do frank but the unicycle ballet thing i might lean away from that i said okay i'll take that into <laughs> consideration i went over and told the sound person these sound cues i told you about don't worry about it if we don't get to them don't don't run them mm, right right for the ballet yeah for the ballet so now the third or fourth time bill screams out at one point he gets a whole table yelling don't do it and he's doing <laughs> and doing this different stuff and it's funny and it's and it's going really well and the third or fourth tackle i say the ballet is back in and mr murray's gonna <laughs> dance the pas de deux with me which is the second routine i do i get a volunteer up and put him into a tutu and dance around with him so i do the ballet in the tutu and then i go walking the ballet on the unicycle and at the end of that, I walk through the crowd to the back, of, all the way to the back of the hall while talking. So now the true heart of the ballet is not in the solo like what I've just done. The true heart of the ballet is rather in the pata de, or dance for two lock eyes with Bill. <laughs> <laughs> he holds his hands up. We take hands and I bring him all the way down through the back of the room and into the kitchen where I pull him into a tutu. And when we come out in tutus, the room loses it. <laughs> the two of us dancing this pas de deux, it's, it's no unicycle, it's no juggling, it's no, it's it's just a dance, me and the other person, uh, both in tutus, dancing around, and he's halfway doing what I want him to do, and halfway he's being Bill Murray, but it is killing. In fact, at one point I get him, I hop up on his back, piggyback, and then get him to hop up on my back, and then I hike him up slowly, step by step, until he's all the way sitting on my shoulders, and he's a big man, he's maybe 220. Mm. So he's sitting, he's sitting on my shoulders yeah. he's a, and the crowd is going nuts. I got him sitting on my shoulders now and he holds on to the cast iron chandelier over our head. I didn't know what was going on. First, I can't move <laughs> to the right and I can't move to the left. And I realize he's, there's a huge cast iron chandelier. He's holding on to it over our head. Oh, and now my knees are starting to get weak. And I'm realizing, <laughs> I know it seems really funny, Mr. Murray, but got to let go of the chandelier. got to dance to finish <laughs> all this. And the room is loose. I find out later he was trying to change one of the, like he's trying to unscrew one of the bulbs. Oh, <laughs> I got you. As long as he's up there, he's going to exactly. do a little service. So, so, yeah. so now he, finally I realized, wait, if I lower myself down, he either needs to stay with the chandelier or come with me. And either one of them right. would be hilarious. It doesn't matter. <laughs> so I start lowering. He's going to be hanging from the chandelier. Or... Lowering, lowering down, he comes to, he comes down with me and is coming up to the very end of the music. And I usually get the person standing on my legs. Like an acrobatic balance type of thing? A, a, yeah. a it's a balance, yeah. Where they're holding yeah. my hands and they're leaning back and standing up on, on my uh, top of my thighs. And the music is going to be over. I never run out of music. I got all the extra music, but it's run extra long because of all the stuff he's throwing in there. And we're coming up to the last notes of the music, and we're not going to be able to do this. I don't care. I'll just do it after the music's over. I tap my legs and hold out my hands, and he knows right where we're going. <laughs> he jumps up. He's done all this stuff before. He jumps right up into the pose, hits the last note of the music, holding out an arm, a big flourish, jumps down, instant standing ovation, high point of a career, no pictures, no video, nothing. <laughs> 
<laughs> but you got to share the story on the podcast, so it will live on. That's it. And it almost seems surreal like this all didn't happen, except there was 150 guys in the room. And every once in a while, I run, I'm run. i running in the same circles, and I run into one of them, and they say, that thing with Bill Murray, and they start crying <laughs> and laughing. <laughs> of course, you ever run into Bill Murray? I haven't seen Bill since then, no. Let's bring it up to the, the present time. Yep. Like I said, we're doing the, we're doing this time of uh, the virus. But what shows are you doing now? Because the shows you're doing now are much different than how you started out. Like you have two shows. Oh, the Twisted Cabaret show. Twisted Cabaret, brilliant fun. I do 16 different variety acts in a two-hour show. Playing all the characters. And you have a, uh, a foil, right? A comic foil. Right. We start out with uh, Paul Nathan on stage. He's in the room. Lately, we've been doing it with him. He comes out sweeping the stage in advance, and then he starts making an announcement about uh, how we're going to be holding the show for a few minutes. And I step up on stage. Why are you holding? I'm, I'm out doing magic in the crowd, and I step up. Why are you making this announcement? Well, because there's some people who aren't here yet, and so we're going to be holding for five minutes. I say, well, usually the MC would make this announcement. He says, he's one of the people who's not here. <laughs> what? And then it turns out none of the performers are here. And so I turn him into my MC. Right. Uh, none of the performers are here. Wait. The band is here. All the props are here. And this fabulous crowd is here. I've got an idea. I will do all of the acts. And right. You do knife throwing and fire eating and, sword swallowing. and big puppets yeah. and all kinds of stuff. Exactly. Hilarity ensues. Let's just put it that way. There it is. Yep. So it's great fun doing all these acts. We just had a, a brilliant four-week run up at uh, Hales where, where the Moisture Festival goes on. Moisture Festival got canceled right after that. Yeah, that's because that's up in Seattle. That's up in Seattle. That's exactly where, yeah, we just... Yeah, I was going to be there the 18th through the 22nd, and uh, the whole thing has been, unfortunately... Because that's a great time with lots of different performers getting together. Oh, it's a, that's a blast on its own, exactly. It's, it's, uh, there's, there's not a lot of social distancing going on, so it's a lot, no, lot of closeness. No, it's the opposite of that, yeah. It's... Opposite. <laughs> hey, so let's talk about your new show, because you have a new show, and maybe you can leave us, leave us some wisdom uh, at the end of the podcast, because your new show is called Tricks to Happiness. Tell us a little about it and maybe give us one bit of wisdom that will make our lives happier. One bit of wisdom. Well, <laughs> hap the show combines uh, my comedy routines, my comedy juggling and unicycling routines and, and magic stuff along with uh, lessons on happiness. And you seriously, you seriously want a tip on happiness? Yes, please. Especially during these times, you know. Happiness breaks down to three things. You, you okay. have these three elements and you'll, you'll have a much, much happier life as, as, as much as you can increase these three things. Sounds good. Rhythm of three, I like it. Simple. It is. It's a connection. Uh, we're each born for connection. We're, we're, over millions of years, we've evolved as social creatures, and nobody finds true happiness in isolation. Levity, mm -hmm. not taking yourself or the world too seriously. And the third is gratitude. We build up to eight points in the show, each point on a juggling ball and some fun, fun bits. But those three, gratitude appreciation for what you have connection and levity you put those three together and happiness pops out it truly does well i have a lot of gratitude for you frank olivier for uh being on the podcast and of course being a big inspiration we've had the opportunity to share some stages over the years uh, i've always been a big fan of everything you do one of the true ogs original gangsters of the comedy juggling world mr frank olivier thanks frank thanks dan take good care i hope you enjoyed drop everything podcast number 80 a big thanks to my special guest, Mr. Frank Olivier. Thank you, Frank, and best of luck on your shows in the future. All right, let's check out our sponsor at Juggle.org. That's the International Jugglers Association, the IJA. Information about that great group of jugglers and this year's festival can be found at Juggle.org. I am Dan Holzman. From everyone here at the staff of Drop Everything Podcast Industries, remember... Drop everything, except when you're juggling.